Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Glad to be back, Scott. Coming to us from lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yes. The home of the Sight and Sound Theater. (laughs) A lot of people come to Sight and Sound Theater here. Yeah, they've done NPR stories on that place. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun place, too. So our lectionary texts this week are, the first one is 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. And I'll just say in summary what the text says. These are the last words of David. (laughs) We have this, we have David's uh, swan song here. And he basically, you know, talks about the word of the Lord being upon him and says that one who rules people over over people justly, uh, you know, ruling in the fear of God is like the light of the morning. It's a very good thing for, you know, the people. Is not my house like this with God? Um, Will you not cause us to prosper? But the godless are all like thorns that are thrown away. So it's sort of, I mean, it is this, so it's interesting because David's record as a king, we could say fairly is checkered, right? I mean, so... Uh, yep. When David when David says, you know, is not my house like this with God? I mean, the, the poll numbers, you know, uh, you know, uh, I imagine David saying, I've got the most fantastic poll numbers. But I mean, I, I could imagine many people would say, well, I mean, I can think of a number of occasions where it was a little ambiguous, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it focuses in on um, the covenant, right? That's the main uh, point is not is not my house like this with God, for He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. It is really that's the legacy, that's the main thing. So you know, you think about a person's life, and you can say, well, look, and he messed up here, and he messed up here, and he messed up here, and all this. But in this case, you know, the main thing is God promised to accomplish uh, His kingdom really through through David through the Davidic covenant. And the the wonderful story when you go back, uh, I guess the text is back in 2 Samuel 7, is that right? Where the Davidic covenant is? I had this marked a moment ago. Yeah, 2 Samuel 7, um, where you have the story of um, David wanting to build God a house. Uh, see, uh, and, and then, you know, the, the, as the story goes, you know, God says basically, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. The Lord also declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. Uh, it's an amazing thing. You know, so Dave wants to build God a house, but then God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And then there's an interesting thing that happens. He goes and sits before the Lord, and he basically says, Lord, you've said that you're going to do something. Please do what you said. <laughs> Please 
Now, this is a great model for prayer, I think. He just says, do what you said you were going to do. You know, And when it says he went before the Lord, this is again in 2 Samuel 7, it's, it seems pretty clear that that's the tabernacle that David erected for the ark. So the tabernacle of David, which which phrase and which idea comes up a couple of times in Scripture in Amos chapter 9, I believe, and then in Acts chapter 15, where James says, uh, this is, you know, when the church was being built and Gentiles were coming in, he said, this is what was referred to in the prophets, that I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle or booth of David. Um, tremendous, uh, tremendous insight. And that's really what these last words have to do with. They have to do with God is going to build the house for David, um, and he's going to build it. And of course, that includes great David's greater son. Jesus, obviously, is the main fulfillment of that. It's interesting, too. I know you don't usually look at the psalm, but Psalm 132 is the psalm of the day. And it is, O Lord, remember in David's favor all the hardships he endured, and how he swore to the Lord, vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Uh, so anyway, this, the psalm uh, definitely reflects that same idea of um, God, uh, God's blessing through the Davidic covenant. Yeah, you know, I think it, it's interesting how you referenced the the whole exchange between David and and. God earlier in David's story about building the house because this sense that the covenant, the, the the dimension of the covenant that's significant, most significant is God's movement toward us. And, you know, no, I'm going to build you a house, sort of, you know, it's like we call a worship service, a worship service. So who is served? In many ways, we're the ones served, right? God serves yes. us in word and sacrament. Like it's so, and I think when you have that perspective, right, then it, it, God's future, God's reign, God's covenant frames both your successes and your failures so that your su successes, you could say, you know, it's not me, but Christ that lives in me, right? But your failures are never determinative, right? That that God, you know, David's failures don't define him. God's covenant defines him. So it, it both, you know, when you're down and out, it it's it's the thing that enables you to know that there's, the story's not over, right? That, that you know, there's there's always room for forgiveness and beginning again at the beginning. And, and when you're when things seem to be going well, if this frame keeps you saying, hey, like, it's all the Lord's, you know, you know, God, you know, when we give the offering of thine own, we only give thee, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I didn't make reference to this, but I think it's clear. Um, though of course, this is the last Sunday after Pentecost, Christ the King Sunday. And so these these readings all have to do with kingship. Um, and uh, the, the collect, at least the Anglican collect, is almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And so the idea here is that Christ's kingdom really does grant to us the the richness of his grace. It's, it's his his service toward us is his rule, his kingship is his rule. So um, you see that I, when you were speaking of that, I thought to myself, Christ coming and at the very end of his ministry, um, we're going to read John in a few minutes, I suppose. At the very end of his ministry, what does he do? You know, in the upper room, he washes the disciples' feet, says yeah. this is, 
this is what it means uh, to to love one another and to serve one another. It's very interesting, by the way, John, how John brings to that point. If you read, it's in John 13, I believe. When you read, it's like, and all these things and knowing this and, you know, basically Jesus reflecting on all that, that had happened, he rose and took a basin and a towel. <laughs> it's like, there's this climactic point, And the climactic point is he goes and washes their feet, which is, you know, you know about washing feet, but it's of course, a, it was something that Jewish slaves could not do. You could, you, if you were a slave and a Jew, you, you, you were, that was too menial work for you to do. And so Jesus does it. Pennsylvania Turnpike, Indiana's early morning dew. On to the reading from Revelation. Again, yes. Christ the King Sunday, Revelation 1, 4b through verse 8, where we have this grace and peace uh, from him who was and is and who is to come from the seven spirits for his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then there's this reference to, um, you know, that, that he we're the ones, he's the one who's freed us from our sins by his blood. And then there's this allusion, I guess, to Daniel, right? Look, he's coming with the clouds, ever I will see him. And then we have Jesus concluding this passage saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, or says the Lord God, right? Who was and is, is and it, who was... Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So I guess here we have Jesus sort of echoing, you know, the the Father or the first person, it seems like, is the referent in the beginning of the verse. And then Jesus is the also the one who is, who was, who is and, and is to come. Hmm. Yeah. And actually, again, you, you mentioned that it does cite Daniel. The other track for reading, um, from the Old Testament, the other Old Testament lesson is Daniel 7, 9 to 10 and 13 to 14, which is, you know, I looked and saw uh, the ancient one who took his throne and one ascending to the uh, to the Lord. You know, basically, I saw in the night visions, one like a son of man who is coming with the clouds of heaven and ascended to the ancient of days. That That's the text that's re- referred to in Revelation uh, 1, verse uh, 7, but that's such an important passage, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Jesus cites it. It's referred to many times. It's, you know, it's it's the Son of Man ascending before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a glory and, and basically all the nations of the world. That's what is cited. When Jesus is uh, being interrogated in his trial, um, and they finally adjure him. You know, they say, I adjure you. I think this is the high priest. I adjure you. Are you the Christ? And he says, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven at the right hand of the Father. So he brings together Daniel 7, 13 and 14 and Psalm 110, 1. These both both important messianic prophecies. And so he says, this is what's going to, you're going to see this, which I take to be, um, I take the preterist reading of these passages i think that that the destruction of jerusalem was the exact event in which the first generation of uh, that first generation the generation jesus was speaking to in in um in the olivet discourse saw the fulfillment of the one who was like the son of man who who brought about ultimately the destruction there of the of the first century world of the first century complex of the of the city and the and the sanctuary. And Daniel 9, of course, prophesies the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Daniel 9, 
about 24 or so and following. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it says he, he's coming with the clouds. Not We often think, I think that means like he's coming in air or something. But the, the cloud, I mean, you think of God's glory presence, right? It's like a cloud. Right? Yeah. There the, God's presence is cloud by day, pillar of fire by, you know, fire by night with his roads. So, I mean, I wonder if that's not more like... He's coming, not sort of the, the the sort of vertical dimension is coming or something, but he come with his coming comes the presence of God. If 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 the original exile in in Genesis where Adam and Eve like lose the presence of God, it's it's sort of like if depravity is from deprivation of the spirit in some way, you know. You think of Israel, you know, like when the glory presence leaves the temple, I guess in Ezekiel, it, it's it, it's that he's coming with the presence. He's coming with the the presence of God. That, that, that what creation's yearning for, uh, you know, is him, right? And when he comes, he comes with this presence. Yes. But I think that the the phrase, you know, coming with the clouds of heaven, that, that idea found in passages like uh, Isaiah 13, referring to the destruction of Babylon. Um, so, so it's it's a judgment language. It's There's something that's good, about to happen. It's judgment. That's why, again, when Jesus refers to that passage in Daniel, thir- Daniel um, 7, 13, and 14, he refers to that when he's being, you know, ask, are you the Christ? He, he basically says, yes, and you're going to see the judgment. You're going to see my, you're going to see my presence, but my presence in this particular case is going to be um, that, that judgment presence. I was just reading this it was funny on, on Sunday, I, I was preaching on Hebrews and I made this point, but you know, there's an enigmatic statement at the end of the gospel of Luke as Jesus is walking to the cross after his, uh, after his trial. And Somebody says something to him and he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And at the end, he says, if this is what they do to the green wood, you know, what's going to happen with the dry? It's kind of an enigmatic statement. I think what it means is they're treating me like a seditious person and they're going to crucify me. But you know that I'm not a seditious person, essentially. You know that I'm not trying to overthrow Rome. But when you, basically first century Jerusalem, when you do become seditious, then it's going to be like your whole city and everything is kindling and it's going to be destroyed. And of course that happened in 70 AD. Um, And I think here, this, even this coming in the clouds, uh, I think that's largely what the book of Revelation is about. So not everybody takes that reading. I think there's still a lot of application to make from it, but I think that's, if you keep reading, what, what does he do when he comes? Well, he destroys this, the great city, that is called figuratively, you know, Egypt, but it is where their Lord was crucified. So that doesn't leave, to me, that makes it pretty clear what the city is. It's not Rome in this case, it's Jerusalem. Um, and so the whole coming in the clouds of heaven is about that destruction. And look at this. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he rules over all the kings of the earth and he's going to demonstrate that kingly rule with his judgment presence first. But it's it's not, that kind of sounds like a... A hard thing to preach, but I think that the the foundation of that is he's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the foundation of his kingly rule, that he freed us from our sins. Or disappear into the butter's ground when the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing And on to the, the gospel reading here, we have 
a this is a great dialogue it, 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 between Pilate and Jesus, and he asked Jesus, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Which is, I mean, it, it seems at least sarcastic to some degree, right? I mean, he's you know because he knows it's a pretty contested claim. He's obviously not any king enfranchised by Rome. And, you know, Jesus says, do you ask this or do others, you know, tell you about me? And, you know, Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? You know, your own nation, the chief priests have handed you over. What have you done? And yet Jesus has this interesting phrase, my kingdom is not from this world. Uh, if my, if it was, my fathers would be fighting uh, you yes. know, to, 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 you know, be fighting. I wouldn't be handed over. And then Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you know, well, you say that I'm a king, um, but... But this, but I came to be into the world to testify to the truth, and that those who listen belong to the truth. Huh. Fascinating dialogue, especially uh, you know the, the, we've just come out of a, another election season, which I mean politics seems to be so divisive today, and you have this uh, you know this interesting phrase, right? My my kingdom is not from this world, right? Like it, it's interesting what what one makes of that as as you read it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that, that, that's one of those rich, I mean, there's just so, so much going on in the gospel of John. I did 42 sermons on the gospel of John a few years ago, and it's just, it's so rich, but the, you know, the, the truth of course, is that Jesus didn't come to be the would be Messiah that was expected that were like a lot of the first century, uh, pretenders to that role, which who were in fact seditious, who were, um, zealots and, he was simply saying, my kingdom is of a different nature than this. Um, and that, you know, again, we're Christ the King Sunday, essentially here. Um, I think what's really, really fascinating about the whole scene is if you keep reading into chapter 19, then when all of it's said and done, when all the dialogue between uh, Pilate and Jesus is done, and Pilate has him mocks mocks him as a king basically puts a crown of thorn on thorns on him purple robe and so forth right they're playing this game with him in in verse 13 of chapter 19 therefore when pilate heard these words he brought and of course the words being um if you release this man you are no friend of caesar everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes caesar therefore when pilate heard these words he brought Jesus out and sat down on the bema seat, the judgment seat at the place called the pavement in Hebrew. It's Gabbatha. Well, the words for sat down, um, Kathizo, it's it can be, it, it can be, as uh, one commentator, um, Francis uh, Maloney, Maloney from a Sacra Pagina a commentary, he says, this, uh, this sat down can be, uh, it's possible that it's transitive, meaning that Pilate sat Jesus down rather than intransitive, indicating that Pilate sat down. That's an intriguing idea. After all this dialogue, and I think this is it's almost certainly what it means in terms of the context, is that Pilate brought Jesus out and sat him down in the place of judgment. And so John is picturing the fact that Jesus is a king, and when he goes to the cross, he reigns from the cross. That's tr just... Uh, a marvelously bittersweet, you know, picture that Jesus is, is, is king in reigning from the cross. And he is the foreshadowing of that is he get, he is literally put in the place of judgment uh, by Pilate. He sits him down and Pilate does it, of course, in a mocking way. But Jesus, 
is in fact king, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, as Revelation says. Yeah, you know, it's most clear in John, right? I mean, that that the cross is is the vindication, is the exaltation. Like in some of the other gospels, it seems like the resurrection is the exaltation, but in John, it's clear the crucifixion is the exaltation, right? I mean, that is the the. I think I think Tim Keller has said this before that 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 sin, you know, what we do in sin is we sit as judge where only God deserves to sit. And in the atonement, God sits, God dwells where, where we deserve to dwell. So you have this interesting trading of places. Mm. Yes. I, and, and I think that, uh, that, that image of Christ as King on the cross really goes all the way through that section in John. It, it, has its climax, I think, in that when he's on the cross, he's sovereign as king on the cross. Uh, there is a, a lit- just so it's clear, there's a literal sign above his head that says king of the Jews, right, in three languages. Um, but then when Jesus had refused this, uh, this, an- this uh, anesthetic wine with gall earlier, now he says, I'm thirsty, and they gave him pasca. And Pasca is just like a really common wine that soldiers drank. And so basically, when he had drunk like a king in judgment, he says, it is finished. You know, Telestai. Right there, he he takes a drink of wine. He literally takes a drink of wine, and then it's done. Just like a king sitting down to rule. Um, uh, the writer of Hebrews has it pictured in a different place, but the same idea. And that is, after he made purification for sins— he sat down at the right hand of God, that, that idea of finishing the job. Um, and of course, John and Hebrews are, are doing two different things, but the same idea is that Christ accomplished his, his work um, as king, even from the cross for us, so that he might free us from our sins by his once for all sacrifice of himself. Yeah, and it, that that act of kingship by which we're made free, and you know, we have that language of revelation that that's the one you know shed his blood that frees us. It, it is the truth. I mean, you have this interesting dialogue about you know truth. You know that he's come to testify to the truth. Von Balthasar, in his book Love Alone Is Credible, says that neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding and thinking or living knowledge or deed. And then he goes on, and it's a very short book, Love Alone is Credible, but then he goes on to say really what, what at the heart of, of the Christian revelation is is love, which is which is like, you know, what you love, you find beautiful and what you find beautiful, you come to love. And, 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 and that the object of this love is the crucified God, like the one who does reign from the cross. And so it's very interesting that, that, you know, I mean, maybe that's the existential question, right? Like, you know, what's true, you know, what does it all mean? And the answer is not necessarily like a philosophy, a proposition, a, a mystical chant or something. It's a person, you know, it's, it's, it's the person yeah. of, of Jesus. Yeah, it is. It is certainly, I mean, that that's certainly the new Testament's teaching that Christ is all of that. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus, right? All the, all, the, all the hopes and wishes that were bound up for us in the Hebrew scriptures come to fruition in Jesus. But I would say all of the hopes and wishes bound up in all peoples for all times. So, you know, I, 
think about Lewis, C.S. Lewis's point that, you know, essentially there were plenty of pictures of Jesus in the pagan religions as well that, that get fulfilled in, in Christ. Um, so I think that that's just, you know, all of the, all, all of our hopes and wishes can be fulfilled in, in him who is the son of God who freed us from our sins and is ruler over the kings of the earth. Yeah. And the revelation of that truth is interesting, right? Because it, it reveals and reconciles and it reconciles and reveals, but you, you can't separate the two, right? You can't, you don't get a picture of that truth fully without being swept up into God's reconciling drama, you know, and likewise, when you are swept into it, you get the truth. You don't get, you don't get to be a detached observer really, right? Like the, the, the manifestation of the truth comes part and parcel with receiving the crucified king. Like you, you can't separate out the truth from the person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that I think is a significant point. I I make this point oftentimes at the Lord's table, um, that we are, we, you know, God, Christ did not give us a philosophy. You know, we, we're we're not inducted into a a philosophical school where we have abstract propositions. Although, you know, of course, Christianity does contain propositions, but that's that's essentially uh, not the not the essence of it. Certainly, and that's why at the center of our worship, our gathering on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, we have a meal where we eat and drink something which is very different than the way you'd think about, about setting up a religion that was primarily a philosophy. Um, uh, and in this case, we eat and drink and ac- acknowledge the presence of Christ in creational things as opposed to an abstract principle. You know, so, so I think, again, it's, it goes to the point of it is a person, uh, not simply a, a philosophy. Yeah, we acknowledge the presence of Christ the King, uh, who's the King for us. Thanks, Greg, for doing this again, and blessings as you preach on Christ the King Sunday. Very good. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.